This ad brought to you by the Cato Institute. Which U.S. state is the freest? Which is the least free? See how your state ranks at the Cato Institute's new web project and free publication, freedominthe50states.org. Supreme Court justices begin their fall term on Monday, still down one person and more or less evenly split on ideological grounds. They appear to be putting off contentious cases that could end up in 4-4 tie votes. But they're still set to take up important issues dealing with congressional redistricting, the president's appointment power, and they could still add a high-profile case dealing with transgender students. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call, joined by CQ legal affairs reporter Todd Ruger. Todd, the death of Antonin Scalia really shook things up ideologically and politically. And to dispense with the obvious question, any chance he'll be replaced on the court before this term is finished? Well, right. They're starting shorthanded with only eight, eight members, and they are ideologically split. So they're kind of in a holding pattern, kind of in a hangover. They're waiting for this election to see what happens and who might be their fifth member. Nothing's going to happen until the election in November. After that, there's, there's anybody's guess as to what's going to happen. The person who really knows is Mitch McConnell. He's the Senate Majority Leader, and he's the one that can control whether or not Merrick Garland, Obama's current nominee for the vacancy, for Scalia's vacancy, gets a vote during the lame duck. And then you have to look ahead and say, wh- who's going to be president? Who's, uh, who's going to control, which party is going to control the Senate? And if the lame duck uh, confirmation vote doesn't happen for Merrick Garland, then a new president's going to take office at the end of January, have maybe a couple months to nominate somebody for the court. And at that point, the vast majority of this term will be over. The the court stops uh, hearing oral arguments in April. So unless they want to hold a case and make a special uh, a special accommodation to get this new justice in and and deciding a case, uh, it looks like this whole term could be could be gone before there's a ninth member. The docket so far, maybe because of that, doesn't have real blockbusters. But there are some intriguing cases uh, from North Carolina and Virginia, for example, that could clarify when a redistricting plan becomes unconstitutional racial gerrymandering. Right. Yeah. The the North Carolina case is about congressional districts, the 1st and the 12th. Those are held by G.K. Butterfield and Alma Adams. Uh, They're the only two... African-American representatives from that state. And then in Virginia, the, it deals with the state uh, legislative districts for the state house. And um, in both of these cases, the states drew these districts so that they would have a certain percentage of minority voters. Um, they do that for, uh, they say, to, to comply with the Voting Rights Act, which requires them to have a certain m- number of majority minority districts so that those minorities can choose representatives of their choice. Um, but they also did it for political reasons because uh, there's a, a lot of a- African-Americans vote uh, with the Democratic Party and have for a while. And so the, the big question here is whether they are moving these for political reasons or for racial reasons. Um, if they put too many in one district, uh, they, they benefit because Republicans in nearby districts won't have as many Democrats in, in their districts to, to fight for re-election and that. Um, the Supreme Court has previously said that meeting this mechanical percentage is unconstitutional. Uh, so this will help really draw, the, draw these lines even further as to how states can draw these, draw these districts without 
without running afoul of the law or the Constitution. So the state could get sued either under the Voting Rights Act or under the Equal Protection Clause. Right. And, and the, the states are, are basically saying this is a Goldilocks problem. You know, there's too much or there's too little. We're considering, we have to consider race because of the Voting Rights Act, but we can't consider race because of the Equal Protection Clause. And so then they're stuck in this, well, it's just whose who's quota is right for this particular uh, district. And, and so maybe maybe the Supreme Court will shed light on that and, um, and we'll have more challenges in the future, no doubt. So. <laughs> Speaking of Virginia, justices could decide to take up a case on transgender rights, but that one is kind of cloaked in the relatively dry question about administrative law. Right. It's a, well, it's one of these juicy, juicy issues. And if they do end up taking it, it would be one of the most high, probably the most high profile, profile case of this term. It's uh, currently being briefed. And so they haven't yet met to decide whether they're going to take this case. But it's, a, it's about a, a 17-year-old in Virginia named Gavin Grimm, uh, a transgender boy, uh, when he went to the school to to say that he was transgender, uh, the school was in completely helpful uh, in in that transition to using you know doing everything from changing his name, uh, his registration to using the boys' bathroom. But the school district, when they got wind of that, uh, v- passed a, a a provision that they won't allow transgender boys to use the boys' bathroom. And um, and so it's a big nationwide controversy about transgender students which bathroom they should use. The Obama administration has said that they should be allowed to use the bathroom of, that's, that's consistent with their gender identity. And, uh, and so you have this, this case bubbling up where the justices could take it on and they could say, the, the, um, you know, ver- go, go with the Obama administration's interpretation on this law that, that preventing sexual discrimination also includes gender identity discrimination. And uh, but the problem is that that there's this underlying legal sort of uh, I guess controversy of itself, which is how much deference do you give to the Obama administration when they're interpreting this 1974 anti-discrimination law? So when when you look at what the Supreme Court might do, even if they do take that case, they might just punt it back since they're split four four. Uh, ideologically, they might just punt it back to a lower court or, or say, well, the, the Obama administration didn't didn't go through the right rulemaking process when they came up with this interpretation of this law or something like that. So uh, that's that's one of those things that was yet to be seen in this term. So in these and other cases, uh, you'll be watching closely Justice Stephen Breyer, a, a Bill Clinton appointee, and whether he takes on a, a more pivotal role. Uh, you wrote a piece for CQ magazine uh, about his liberal but pragmatic approach, uh, including in last term's political corruption case involving Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. Right. Uh, you know, all of the justices are having some shifting positions uh, now with the absence of Antonin Scalia and with this uncertainty uh, of who might become the next justice and what their uh, what their tendencies or political leanings might be, but uh, Breyer, I think, is one to watch for for several reasons. He's been increasingly more uh, involved in in some of the more contentious cases and in in the majority. Uh, last term, he wrote uh, he was he was assigned to write by Justice Kennedy in a, 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 a decision that struck down Texas's a- abortion restrictions, mm-hmm. and that. Uh, was seen as very sen- sensitive uh, matter. And the reason that the people believe that Kennedy let him write that is because he knew that it would be narrow and pragmatic and focus only on Texas and wouldn't be a wide-sweeping decision. 
And it's that sort of thing that the court will be looking, that sort of middle ground that the court will be looking for in the future. And and what that is, you mentioned um, this uh, corruption case last year. And what that what that does is it it's probably good for Congress in the end if Breyer is is more influential or more kind of in the middle ground or brokering deals because he's got a history of paying attention to Congress. He worked on the Hill as a chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator uh, Edward Kennedy. Kennedy. And he um, and he has uh, an interpretation of the law that says if the if the if a law that Congress has passed isn't quite clear, let's look at what the the legislators said at the time and what the reports were and what the staff said at the time for their intent. And um, and then in this last case, last term, he looked at a case where it was about corruption, and he knew he sort of led these questioning at the uh, at the oral arguments about well, w- when when lawmakers do this, when lawmakers do that, what about this? Well, you you might be restricting when lawmakers can ask for money or when lawmakers can rec- you know get a dinner. Now wait, you see, I I can go back to a lot of different commission, the Brown Commission, the, the Senate S-1, the language of the statute, and I read official action, uh, something it's quite similar to the statute here. A decision, opinion, recommendation, judgment, vote, or other conduct, perhaps other similar conduct, involving an exercise of discretion. So in this case, the official action we're talking about is giving money to a group of people in the university to conduct a study. Now, the governor didn't do that. But a person who tries to influence an official action and is also in the government is also guilty. But wait, that's the Indian case. Yes. But wait, the word influence is too broad because every day of the week, Politicians write on behalf of constituents letters to different parts of the government saying, will you please look at the case of Mrs. So-and-so, who was evicted last week. And uh, that's so common, it can't pick that up. That became a pivotal part of the decision uh, that struck down the corruption charges against Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. You quoted someone in this piece uh, saying the liberal justices on the court vote so often together it's really difficult to tell if Breyer is actually the most liberal of the justices. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, when you look at when you line them up on a spectrum, you can see uh, that Breyer is to the center of the other liberal justices, but they do vote together uh, a lot. And and um, in the in the story I wrote, there's uh, a conservative uh, scholar. Uh, who used to who used to clerk for uh, Justice Th- Clarence Thomas, who's who's conservative, and from that position, you can see uh, that if there's somebody else that's added to the court, either Merrick Garland or um, uh, if President Hillary, if there's a pr- Hillary Clinton becomes president and she puts on uh, somebody that's even more liberal than Breyer, where those five voting together could could mean there really is no no middle ground from the conservative perspective. Turning back to the forthcoming term, uh, there are two immigration cases. Uh, They deal with the parameters for detaining and removing undocumented immigrants. Any chance they alter the dynamics of the congressional debate over overhauling immigration laws? Um, I'm not sure it's going to alter the debate because this is really uh, about the the 
functioning of how do we deal with this these numbers, these thousands of people that are coming over the border. Um, be, it, but it, it might affect it in, in that this this could become more of a priority if the government doesn't win. The government is basically saying in these cases that it could harm their ability to, A, deport people that they want to deport who have criminal backgrounds, which is something that a lot of the Republican lawmakers are pointing to uh, that doesn't get done enough. And then, B, the government is saying it will it might restrict their ability to patrol the border because – uh, they they won't be able to hold on to or detain illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants as as long as they they have in the past, and that could d- endanger security and might actually attract more people to um, to come. But the the issue in one of the cases is that uh, the Ninth Circuit in California said that immigrants can't be held more than six months without a hearing, just a hearing to see whether they should continue to be detained. Uh, and and the government has said that that might that might encourage people to come, knowing they might get released after six months, and actually encourage more uh, undocumented immigration. CQ Legal Affairs reporter Todd Ruger on the forthcoming Supreme Court term uh, that starts Monday. Actually, uh, I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find all of our podcasts at rollcall.com/forward/slash. Podcasts. Have a good week.